And what a set of worship to see lives changed by Christ. And kids, before you get dismissed this morning, some of you are here in the first service, some of you are new here today, but just what a, what a testimony we just saw with these baptisms. Kids, you remember Ellie, what Ellie said there when she said, I don't have to be perfect, that Jesus was perfect for me. And, and that's why we come to church. That's why we come and we gather together and we sing and maybe you go to a Christian school, maybe, maybe not. But we, we come here recognizing that we aren't perfect and all of the people who shared this morning in their testimonies all had struggles, different struggles. But we can turn to Jesus because he is perfect for us. And what an example that is for not just kids, for you, but for your parents, for the adults. And, and that's why we are here as a church to say we are, we are not perfect, but we know Jesus who is. And so kids, remember that from third graders all the way up to someone in their 30s who say, Jesus is my perfection, and I have struggles, but Jesus came and he's changed my life. What a, what a, what a testimony today. What a, what a Bible lesson today. You got it, kids? Okay, yeah, you're shaking your heads. You're dismissed now to go over to Fusion. <clears throat> Well, good morning again, and we're so glad that we can be together. What a, what a moving way to worship. Just a really, really thankful for those six. And, and like, like Pastor Jonathan said, we would love to walk you through what it means to go public, to share your testimony, to stand up, whether you, you've been in church for a long time or not a lot of time, what it means, first of all, to know Jesus the way they've shared, but then what does it mean to stand up and say publicly that I'm following Jesus and I want my church to know? We'd love to talk to you about that. We're going to be in 1 Peter this morning, so if you have a Bible and you can turn to 1 Peter. We have Bibles in the back, the back corner by the chairs. You're free to, to take a Bible. You can keep it. We also have journal journal Bibles for 1 Peter at the, at the welcome desk. If you like to take notes and want to take notes next to the text, we're, we have those for just a few dollars back at the welcome desk. Uh, but we've been talking about 1 Peter. Okay, Peter, the apostle, he is writing five churches. He gives the locations of these five churches. He sends the letter along. It's these five areas that we know today as in Turkey. And he's telling these churches, read this letter Write it down, think about it, talk about it, and then I want you to deliver the letter to the next church. And what he's talking about in this letter, kind of the big idea of 1 Peter, of this letter that he's writing, he's teaching them how they might handle, how they might face and be refined by the different pressures and fires and temptations and trials of their life. And so this is what we've been talking about. Peter is writing them saying, yeah, you're five different churches, but you're facing very similar fires in your life. And we talked about the types of fires just a few weeks ago. 
Peter will talk about the fire of temptation, saying you as an individual follower of Jesus Christ, that you will face fire of internal temptation, seeking to get you to walk away from Jesus, to bow down to your flesh. And so Peter is telling them about this type of fire. He talks about the fire of persecution. That is, you live for Jesus and follow him and, and know him, that you will, you will be persecuted in this culture. And in this world, you will not be light because you are different than the people around you. He talks about the fire of grief. In chapter one, he says, you're grieving because of these trials. And the point of what he's saying is you're, he's saying you're gonna face different types of challenges and struggles. Internal temptation, external persecution, grief, and this is gonna be part of your life. And so what he's doing with this letter, he's seeking to teach them how they might handle these fires and these trials where they're not burnt up by these fires, but they come through them and they're refined. And so we've seen that Peter's not just writing these, this letter to, to warn them about the fire. This isn't informational where he's saying, let me just tell you about the different types of things that you're, you're going to face. But what we're going to see this morning is that Peter very clearly wants to teach them how to forge through any fire. It's not just informational. But he wants to teach them how to be refined fire by the fire, how to face it head on, how to survive it and to go through it, that when you come on the other side, that you will look more like Jesus because of it. And as I was kind of thinking about what Peter's going to start to do here in verse 13, saying, this isn't just a warning. This isn't just how to survive. This is how to, to go through it. I was thinking about a game that we used to play as a family and my uh, it, the game, The Worst Case Scenario Survival Guide. It's a game, it's a book, uh, it's, it's really not encouraging. You, you put in these really bad situations and you're given multiple choice questions about how you might get out of these situations. For example, you're eating a picnic and there's, you think there's a turtle in the lake right in front of you. It turns out it's an alligator. The alligator comes out of the water. What do you do? Do you flap your arms around? Do you pace back slowly? Do you jump on its head or do you punch the alligator? Well, that's not encouraging. I think I'd be dead is what I think I'd be doing. You're supposed to, by the way, jump on the head of the alligator. Believe it or not, that's what you're supposed to do. You're not going to outrun it. Well, one of the cards is how to survive a wildfire. So you're in another really encouraging situation. You're out in the woods. You come across a fast-moving wildfire what are you supposed to do? And it's a really bad situation. But the card tells you, 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 you can't just stay put. The fire's coming at you. You, you can't, you, you don't want to climb a tree. That's a really bad idea. You don't just hunker down and hope for the best. And even running is not really a good situation either because wildfires can spread faster than you can run. And it's like, so hopefully you have a car nearby. It's like, well, that, what if I don't have a car nearby? But at the end of the card, what it said, which was really kind of comical to me, was it said, well, your best thing to do is if you can't outrun the fire and you don't have the car uh, to, to 
dig what's called a fire trench. And so they tell you how to dig a fire trench. You dig a hole two to three feet deep. You jump into the hole that you've been able to dig in just a few minutes. You put the dirt over your, it sounds like a coffin to me. You, you put the dirt back on top of you. Put your face in the fire so the fire will pass over you, going over the dirt. And the end of the card, it said, this will not be pleasant. Well, thanks a lot. Worst case scenario survival. But this is what Peter's doing. He's saying, you're gonna face various types of fires, temptations and challenges and persecution and grief, and we've gotta forge through this fire. And so this is where we start in verse 13. I wanna read verses 13 through 21, and then we'll pray and we'll kind of walk through how Peter's instructing us how to get through these fires. So let's read verse 13. Therefore, preparing your mind for action, being sober-minded. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who, is called, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Let's pray. Father, we recognize this morning that many of us face different types of fires even in this moment. Challenges of disappointment or discouragement, physical challenges, grief, suffering, whatever it may be, God. And so we come to this text, whether that's where we are now, knowing that this is where we're gonna be at some point. God, and we pray that you would help us to learn from Peter how we might take the fires that are all around us and we would be refined, we'd, we'd forge forward, and we come out on the other side looking more like your son. And so God, teach us, how do we do it? Because without you, these hard things that we face will, will just destroy us. We left to ourselves, we, we can't do it. And so God, we pray that by your spirit, through the truth of your word, that you would equip us, teach us how we might follow you even in the midst of challenges. So Holy Spirit, we ask that you give us focus, you give us insight, you give us encouragement today through the teaching of your word. To the name of Jesus Christ we pray, amen. You kind of read through the text. I think it's clearly broken up in three sections as we think about what, what are we supposed to do in the fire. The first section, verse 13, is the preparation stage. The second part of this of this 
passage is the call or the two commands that Peter's going to give us, followed by verse 18 through 21. Uh, this would be the motivation. So how might you be motivated to do the two calls or the two commands of verse 13 through 17? But before he starts commanding, he tells you there's, there's things that you, you have to be prepared in advance before you do what I tell you you're to do. And so he tells them, verse 13, the two things that they're supposed to do in preparation. Verse 13, therefore... Preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded. He's saying before you do anything, before you follow any command, we've got to think about our, about our minds. Both of these acts of preparation, prepare your mind for action, being sober-minded. He's saying you've got to get your mind and your brain and your thinking straight. You've got to get it biblical. You've got to get it wrapped up in good theology because you've got to know who you are really before you go and do anything. So he says, prepare your mind for action. Okay, so here's was my question. Well, how, how do you do that? Like the action's about to come, and, but Peter says, before you get to the action, Prepare your, your mind for what you're going to be asked to do. And so I was thinking, well, what do you, how do we prepare our minds for action? Let's say you signed up for a race. You're going to run a half marathon. How does that sound? Yeah, not so good, does it? I signed up for a sprint triathlon this spring. So you're swimming, you're biking, you're running. I'm nervous that I'm going to drown to death. But you get to the starting line, what do you do before you start the race? You prepare your mind for action. You tell yourself, you speak to yourself, I can do this. I have trained, hopefully, you hopefully trained really hard that you, you can finish this race. You're going to live, you're gonna win, you're gonna make it across the finish line. And so you're, you're pumping yourself up in, in your mind, you're preparing your mind for action, that you're talking yourself up. I can do this. I have trained, I've worked, and I'm ready to go. I do this every Sunday before I preach a sermon. I, I have my music, I'm listening to, my, to, to worship, I'm li listening to different songs. I'm listening to the eye of the tiger. I can get up and I can preach. We can, and so you pump yourself up. You're preparing your mind for the action of what you're going to do. And so Peter's saying, prepare your mind. But what is, what are the thoughts that he's telling you to prepare your mind with? That's the word, therefore. It's everything Peter has said in the first 12 verses saying, prepare your mind for this action by filling your mind with the truth of who you are in Jesus. Verse one, you were known before you were born. Fill your mind with that. That Jesus and the Father and the Spirit have known you for eternity. Fill your mind with the fact that you have been set apart by the Spirit. Verse two, fill your mind with, the, with rich 
theology that because of Jesus, he's made atonement for you with the Father. You've been made at one. That's verse three. Fill your mind with the truth that you have been born again by the Spirit, that you've been given a new life because of Jesus. And what Peter is saying is, fill your mind with good theology, with, with rich theology of who you are, because it is the, that way of thinking that allows you to do what he's about to ask them to do. He also says, be sober-minded. This is different than just preparing your, your mind for action. He's saying, now, on top of that, I want you to think, I want you to be sober in how you think. And I've been thinking about this this metaphor, like I don't think he's just saying, don't be drunk. But I think he's taking the picture of drunkenness and sobriety, and he's saying, I want you to use that picture of being sober, and I want you to apply it to how you think. And so I don't know your experience with alcohol. I grew up with alcohol around me. Okay, alcohol is a depressant. So what it does is it slows things down. It slows down your brain function. It causes things to just kind of relax. And so it's very common on a Friday night, a long week of work, people will go home and to help them slow down and to relax and to not be anxious, you open up a can of beer. And so what we know with the science of alcohol is that this actually, it actually works. It's a depressant. It causes your brain to slow down and to not be stressful and to not be anxious. And so that's why a lot of people will have a can of beer on a Friday night. But here's the problem. Okay, the problem is, is that God already designed our bodies and our brains to relax and not to be overcome with stress just internally with our brain. And so God, when he made our brains, made a neurotransmitter called GABA in your brain. You're getting a science lesson today. And in your brain, when you're stressed, GABA is released and it helps you to not be anxious, to not be stressful, to not be overcome with the external things that are happening in your life. And so GABA is released in your brain to help you relax. And so here's the problem. When you drink alcohol, what alcohol does, it actually latches onto the GABA, the GABA system and it, it releases what is like what your body thinks is GABA all throughout your body. And so alcohol is helping you to relax, while at the same time, GABA is also being released in your body. And what happens? You have this overload of relaxation. You're over-relaxed. You're, you're over-resting. And what happens is you can't, you can't walk straight because there's too much of a good thing. You can't talk right, you slur, you have impaired judgment, you have no control of anything. And again, we're not talking about alcohol today, but it, it creates a problem you didn't even have oftentimes because what you w- went to to help you relax, what oftentimes it actually causes more problems, more anxiety because you've done something in your over-relaxation that you shouldn't have done and when you're overstressed again, you turn back to alcohol, it creates more and more problems. What Peter is saying here, he's saying, you need to be sober-minded. You need to be in complete control of how you're thinking, that the fire is raging around you. And I don't know how you do in a stressful situation, like a medical emergency, 
I'm awful. Okay, it's like, where's my wife? Tell me what to do. I get nervous. I get, I don't know what, she just tells me, here, go do this, call this number. He's saying, be sober-minded. The fire is raging around you. Be in control of your thinking. Be in control, be precise with your thinking. You know who you are in Christ. You're foreknown. You're born again. Your hope is in Christ. And so he's saying, he's saying, before you do anything, prepare your mind. Prepare it for action by thinking rich, deep theology and be, be in absolute control of what you think. Even when there's chaos, you are in control of, of thinking correctly about things. That you're not, and I see this all the time. That when the fire rages, whatever that is, hardship, grief, challenges, struggles, you, you fill it in. What happens is that we, our bad theology comes to the surface. And our bad theology guides us in how we respond. We're blaming God or we're mad at him, so we run from him. We bad theology about our sin nature. And so we just kind of succumb to the sins that we've always struggled with. Wow, this is just how, it's just how God made me. I'm always going to struggle with this. It's like, that's bad theology. God is faithful. You can overcome your sin. God is not to be blamed for, your, for the sin in your life. God is not to be blamed for the suffering in your life. And, and so what, what Peter is saying is, precise thinking, sober-minded, ready to do what he's calling you to do. So he tells them, here's the two things I want you to do. This is the call or the commands of, of 1 Peter 1.13. The command to hope and the command to holiness. So those are the first two commands of 1 Peter. It's all been theology up to this point. This is who you are. You're rejoicing in suffering. This is who you are because of Christ. Now, now you're ready to do something. This is how he wants us to forge through the fire. First, the command to hope. Still in verse 13. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Put your hope fully on the grace of Jesus Christ. I mean, what a, what a command. What a, what a great thing for us to do when we struggle with whatever it is we're facing. But the question is, that, that maybe you're thinking, what does that mean? How... Like, I can set something up, I can go walk somewhere, I can do something, but what, how do I set my hope on something? Like, that's not very concrete. I wanna share an illustration I've shared before. It's, to me, the best illustration that I have on hope, and hopefully it'll help us understand how we might set our hope on the grace of Christ. A long time ago, probably 20 years now, not 20 years, 15 years, my, my older brother gave me a book uh, by, by a man named Victor Frankl. The book is called Man's Search for Meaning. It's a sobering book, real thin book. He wrote me a note in it, read the book. Um, it's about a Victor who is a Jewish psychotherapist who survived the death camps of World War II. So a Jewish man, but as a doctor, a psychotherapist, he was fascinated by how the people around him, his 
fellow Jewish brothers and sisters survived these death camps. And so as a doctor, he, he observed and analyzed how they, how they went through these, this, this atrocity that they were facing. And so here was his conclusion on the four types of people and how they, how they went through these, this awful uh, event. And so I'll, I'll read a little bit of what he says, how they responded. First, he said, people often got brutal. Even the nicest people in the death camps became brutal and cruel to other inmates, and they would do anything to survive. Second, he said, the second group, people gave up. He said, many prisoners just lost all hope, and with all hope, they lost their spiritual hold Usually this happened quite suddenly, the symptoms of which were familiar to us experienced camp inmates. We all feared for this moment in our friends. Usually it began one morning when a prisoner simply refused to get dressed or to wash or to go out to the parade grounds for inspection. No entreaties, no blows, no threats had any effect. They just laid there. They had given up. Nothing bothered them anymore because they had no hope. He gives an example of this. He says, my senior block warden, a well-known composer, once told me that he had a dream that the war was going to end on March the 30th. He was convinced that this dream was a revelation. But as the day drew nearer, it became clearer from the news reports that the war was not going to end. On March 29th, he suddenly began running a high temperature. On March 30th, on his day, he lost consciousness. On March 31st, he was dead. The loss of hope had lowered his body's resistance to all the diseases of the camp. The third group, he said, people held on. So they got brutal, they gave up, and then the third group, people held on. He says, many held on through the hope that if they stayed alive, their health, their family, their professional achievements, their fortune, their position in society, those things that had been their hope would be restored. But after liberation, so many found that when the day of their dreams had finally come, it was much different than what they longed for. Many fell into deep depression for the rest of their lives. Many still committed suicide. No earthly happiness can compensate us for all that we suffered. And afterwards, we were not prepared to handle the disillusionment. And then the fourth group, only a few prisoners kept their full inner liberty and obtained an inner strength that raised them above their fate. How is that possible? Here's what he said they did. Life in a concentration camp tears open the human soul, exposes its depth and its foundations. What is the foundation? Hear this. Life only has meaning if we have a hope and a meaning that suffering and even death cannot destroy. I mean, wow. Life only has meaning if we have a hope and a meaning that suffering and even death cannot destroy. Remember that somebody is looking down on you from heaven, a friend, a wife, a spouse, God. We must not disappoint them. So what is he saying? He's saying your hope where you set your hope 
determines how you will handle suffering of any kind. And so what Peter is telling us, the first thing that we do before we get to some action is we set our hope fully on grace. That anything else that we set our hope on, it could, could potentially be destroyed by whatever fire you may face, personal, individual, inner, outer, whatever it may be. He's saying the only place to set your hope is on grace. Grace, the grace that was shown to you in Jesus, in forgiveness, that, that you weren't good enough to earn what God, what God gave you through Jesus. You're not good enough to earn it. You're not bad enough to lose it. God gives it to us as a gift. It's grace, completely disconnected to how good we are or how bad we are. And it is that grace that we hope for in the future, the same grace that, that he talks about in the first 12 verses. He's saying your hope is in that same grace coming again and continuing to bless your life. And he's saying set your hope fully on that and nothing else because the fire could destroy it. I mean, and I've seen this working with people. I remember working with students, Christian students, godly students, and their hope was on athletics. I remember two seniors one year, one who was going to go to college to run, Division One, so a very good runner, another, a really good soccer player. And both of them experienced injuries their senior year, which changed all of their plans. And it just completely devastated them, understandably, but derailed them to the point that they didn't know what they were living for. What do I have to live for if I can't do this? Their hope was in this sport. Their hope was in running. But here's what Peter is saying. The only thing you can hope in is the grace of Jesus. That's it. That's it. That's the only thing you can bank on. And it, it, you've experienced it in your past, and you're going to experience it in the future, and it is coming. And hold on to that because you want to survive the fire? Hope in grace. And then he gives his second command. Verse 14 through 7, the command to holiness. Verse 14, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but he who has called you is holy. You also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. I mean, this kind of surprises you maybe a little bit. You're going through fire. What are you supposed to do? You don't wait for it to pass. You don't climb a tree. You don't hope for the best. Peter's saying, you forge forward in your own personal holiness. I am holy, therefore you should be holy. And I, I understand that holiness is, it's a loaded word, or it's a word that we're very familiar with in church. It's a word that we associate with, with I have no idea what, but we, we have this connotation or this perception of what holiness, what it is. And it's not a difficult concept. It's God saying, I have something new, something distinct that I want to do through you because of my love for you. And he's, what, what holiness is in the Old Testament, he's saying, I have a new purpose. I have a new purpose for you. And to Israel, it was, I want you 
to share my love with other people. And if you're gonna, share, if you're gonna represent me, then your behavior has to reflect my behavior. And it's really the same in the New Testament. Holiness is us representing the character of God. You go back to the Old Testament, Leviticus 18 through 22. It's an exciting portion of scripture. I'm joking, but it is, it is exciting. The holiness code, and, and here God is teaching the people how they might live according to the, what's called the code of holiness. How might you represent me in your farming? He tells them. When you go to farm and harvest your crops, you know what he tells them to do? He says, I want you to leave the outer section of, of your field, and I don't want you to harvest it. This would have been completely radical thinking. Well, why, why don't we harvest the outer edge of our, of our field? Why aren't we supposed to pick up the grapes that are ready to be picked? Or no, they weren't supposed to pick the grapes that had been fallen. They were still good. He tells them, I want you to let anyone else harvest your outer part of your field. Those who struggle and those who have needs, those who are poor, those who are hungry. This is holiness. You act like I act. I don't want you to oppress your neighbors. I mean, this is common. This is common practice. You take what you want. You're brutal. You're cruel. And what God's telling them is, I, want, I don't want you to oppress your neighbor. I don't want you to rob your neighbor. I want you to pay the people who work for you. I want you to be fair to those that live around you. And again, this is the holiness code. This is how I want you to live in light of who I am. Those that have handicaps, he tells them in Leviticus 18, those who have handicaps who are blind or deaf, we just don't push them to the side and, and we, we're not just done with them. I want you to care and serve and provide for them. This is the holiness code that, that God is laying out to the people of Israel. And this is what Peter is saying to us today. There's still a holiness code that as you go through fire, we're, we're not bemoaning the fact that we're struggling. We're not complaining. We're not hiding away. What Peter is saying is you fight fire by, by forging ahead in your own personal holiness so that the world will see me through whatever fire you face so that you're, you're generous. You know what the holiness code of generosity is? Is that, that we don't care about our things. We don't care about our money, our houses, our food. We will give anything and everything away because God's given us everything. That's holiness with our property and with our generosity, that we're radically pure, that we, we live by God's standard of marriage, that we treat our spouses the way that, that God tells us to do in his word with respect and love and service. We're pursuing holiness so that we could represent Jesus in whatever fire we face. We love our enemies. We love our enemies. Political, whatever enemy you have, your neighbor, whatever it is. Holiness is not acting like the world acts towards your enemies. That you love and you serve and you care and you give and you do it over and over and over again because this is the way of Jesus. And, I, you know, it's just interesting that we, as, a, as a church, I don't know that we talk enough about holiness. How are we 
representing Jesus in our behavior. Because this is what Peter says, be holy in all your conduct. I mean, he's telling it like it is. In everything you do, in every area of your life, husbands, dads, and employers, and employees, and neighbors, everything you do, as a driver, that's funny, right? We laugh at driving. You get mad. He's saying, in everything you do, you represent me. Students, we don't cheat. I'm always astounded by the amount of cheating, but we don't cheat. Be holy in all of your conduct. We're not stealing. We're not lusting. We're not ruthless. We don't demand good service. We don't get angry when we're at a restaurant and it doesn't turn out the way. Like that. Be holy in all your conduct. You want to fight through fire? Look like my son Jesus in whatever you face. And we're running out of time, but I'm going to keep going here because this is the most important part. What, what, is, the, what is the motivation here? Okay, because this is the key to the sermon. And Peter comes back to this in verse 18. How on earth can we be holy? How can we put our hope? How can we be holy this way? And Peter tells us, verse 18, what is the answer? Knowing that you were ransomed. That's the key. You want to underline a word? Underline the word ransomed. It is the key to this passage. You know that you were ransomed. The application this morning isn't go and try harder to be holy. It's not start talking to your spouse the right way. Stop looking at this. Stop doing this. Put some more self-effort into doing that. that. That is not the application here. Peter is saying, how can you be holy in all your conduct like God is holy? You know that you were ransomed. Your Bible may have the word redeemed. That's wrong. You need to mark that out. Put ransomed. It's the word for redemption in the Greek, but because the price that is paid, it should be translated ransom. So if you're redeeming something for money, then it's a redemption. You're redeeming money for something. But what does it say? The verse says, you're not, you're not redeeming something for, with silver and gold. There is an exchange being made. Jesus is giving himself as the payment. It's a ransom payment. He's saying, I will pay the price so that they don't have to. What a picture. What's our motivation for holiness Our motivation is we worship a God who sent his son to be ransomed for us. You know, as I was picturing Peter writing this, I picture Peter, I picture him weeping at this verse. Because holiness is hard. It is hard. I mean, we're good at being holy in some ways, but but in the ways that we struggle, it, it is just hard. But what is Peter saying? Don't forget the ransom. Jesus gave his life for you. And I really do believe this. To the extent 
that we can see the cost of our sin is to the extent that we can be holy. To the extent that, that we can understand what our sin cost Jesus. To the extent that we, that affects us and bothers us and convicts us is to the extent that we can pursue holiness. This, this is our motivation. Jesus died for us. The beauty and the costliness of that fuels us. It fuels you to say, Jesus gave his life for me. Now I have the opportunity to represent him in how I live. Regardless of what I'm experiencing, I can be holy like the Father. And so for us, church, may we see the beauty. May we see the costliness. And may we be overwhelmed in gratitude. And I know we've been in church, you've been in church a long time. But may we never, ever just get accustomed to or used to what Jesus has done for us. But may it be the propeller for us to live in holiness. Let's pray. Father, We know, we know that you were ransomed for us. And God, I pray that would be moving to us this morning. That you paid the price that we deserved for our own sin. We deserve the, to pay the, the, the penalty. I mean, we're the ones that, that messed up and have made bad decisions. But you were ransomed for us through Jesus. And I pray that that's moving to us. I pray that we would see the beauty in it. I pray that it'd be overwhelming to the point that we're motivated to be holy, to represent you to anyone and everyone that's around us in whatever role we have. And so God, we pray that as we sing this last song, a song we've sung many times before, but that we would relish in the cost that your son gave for us. So move in our hearts and our minds that we may live and walk and leave this place in holiness, regardless of the fires we face this week, because we want to represent you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.